Hello, and welcome to the podcast. This podcast is where sermons, messages, and other presentations from Christ Community Church in Brawley, California are posted. For more information, you can go to www.cccciv.org and select the Brawley campus or find us on the App Store. Let's get started. And uh, maybe tonight is one of the, I feel like I say this every week, that this is the question that people seem to really struggle with when they consider what Christianity is. And that's how could a loving God create hell? How, how can we reconcile these two ideas of, of a judging God and a loving God all in one package? And for many people, you can't reconcile them. You can't bring these two things together. Um, but what we're going to sh- see here is that not only is this something that is reasonable for, for people to hold to, that the, the doctrine of God's judgment, the idea of hell is something that is credible to believe in, but it's actually very important. It's actually critical for our relationship with God, and we're going to show that a little bit. Uh, typically, I've uh, made index cards available um, for if you want to write a question down, and, and I'll read it without saying who wrote it. Um, if you want to do that, I, I would give you the index card, but we've done some painting in the back. Excuse the mess, by the way. Um, but uh, if you do have a question, uh, feel free to ask it, and I promise I'll like turn off the microphone so that you're not recorded asking it. But um, I am, we are recording tonight just because there are a few people who uh, want to hear this content who aren't able to make it here tonight. So uh, otherwise, I would not be using a microphone. So, all right. Let's uh, go ahead and uh, kind of consider, uh, I'd like to start off with, you know, kind of going a little bit uh, into detail with the specific objections that people have with uh, this topic, this idea of a loving God uh, creating hell, uh, hell and even sending people to hell and then how that's understood. Um, I want to make sure I'm connected properly here. Here we go. Okay, so let's look. I I think there's like seven specific objections that people have concerning hell. So here here are their objections. Uh, First, that hell is like wrongfully imposed upon people. Uh, When they say, hey, you know, if we're not interested in this God thing, why does he punish us? Can't he just like leave us alone? Uh, Another one is that hell... uh, is exclusive. It, it promotes this exclusivity, this intolerance. Uh, it, it basically gives Christians a reason to look down on others because they're condemned and Christians are, are saved. Uh, the next one is that hell, the existence of hell, the idea that God judges, actually encourages violence and retribution. Uh, next, we see that hell is, uh, isn't hell incompatible with love. Uh, how, can, how can God's judgment and a God of love be uh, compatible? Next, people have uh, the objection that hell is disproportionate to whatever crime could be committed on earth. How can, how can uh, we get punished forever, for eternity, for something that just happened during our lifetime? Um, and then there's also the objection you know, that even uh, some Christians would make that I, I don't know if I could believe in hell um, because even if I were in heaven, just the fact that people were suffering would still bother me. 
And then finally, the, the last objection that we'll talk about here tonight is that, uh, okay, let's say that hell is something that the Bible teaches, that it is uh, something that Christians should include and in, in when they talk about God. But, you know, we, once, you, once you believe in it, you can just kind of move past it. You don't really want to dwell too much on this. This is uh, not going to be something that's going to be beneficial to your personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, that, that's a relationship of love and the idea of God judging, God, God uh, creating hell. That's not really an important part that we as Christians need to interact with. So, okay, those are, the, those are the, just a, a sampling of uh, some objections that people have with the doctrine of hell. So let's work through this and see what we can say about some of these. So this first objection, hell is wrongfully imposed on people. Why not just, why can't God just leave us alone? And the idea is this, is that, you know, if God wants people to worship him, Great. Uh, you know, if that's, that's what they want to do, that's fine. But if there's some people who say, I don't want to be part of the game, so to speak. I don't want to be involved with whatever is going on here. If I don't want to worship God, why am I being punished for that? Why can't God just be happy with the people who are worshiping him? Why do I get in trouble, so to speak, because God, um, uh, because I don't worship God? And, and the few things we have to say here. First, uh, you could argue that hell is God's answering that request. That is God saying, okay, you want to be left alone. I'll leave you alone. I'll cut, your, I'll cut myself totally off from you. And the word for that is actually hell. So we see this uh, with the doctrine of what's called common grace. That, that uh, We see this in Matthew 5.45, for example, where it says that God... Uh, makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And what Jesus is saying there is that God gives this grace, things that we don't deserve to people that is apart from saving grace, from God working and, and saving people. There's another type of grace, this common grace, that everybody enjoys regardless of what you believe or what you practice. The evil and the good, the just and the unjust, all get these basic blessings from God, that he's the source of all good and, and in God is our true satisfaction. And so, um, what, what this says then is that the idea that you want to be cut off from God means you actually want to be cut off from everything that is good and satisfying for you. And uh, I'm going to reference C.S. Lewis a few times here tonight just because he spoke so well on this issue. But here's how he described it. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. So what, what is Lewis saying? He's saying that um, for, for us to say, I want life apart from God. I want life apart from, from what God wants me to do and all that. If God were to answer that prayer, so to speak, there's actually nothing worse that could happen to you. That hell, in one sense, is God saying, all right, 
if you want life apart from me, here's what happens. And that's, that's what C.S. Lewis is getting at here. And we see this a little bit in Romans chapter 1, uh, where it describes the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all godly, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And this type of wrath is not the kind of wrath where Paul's describing here, where God says, all right, you're disobeying me. I'm going to go out of my way to make things miserable for you. No, I want you to, to look at some... Uh, select verses from Romans 1, and you can see a pattern here. So in verses 24, 26, and 28, we see that in response to human sin, what does God do? Well, over and over again, it says, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Uh, God gave them up to a debased mind. In other words, uh, when people sin, the worst thing that God can do to that person is say, all right, I'm gonna give you the freedom to keep pursuing whatever you're pursuing that isn't me. And as a result, misery, brokenness, alienation comes into the life of that person. This is what's called the passive wrath of God, that God's punishment of someone is, is to say, all right, let's go with your plan. And so essentially, that's what Lewis is getting at here. This is what Paul's getting at, is that God's anger, God's wrath is letting a person kind of pursue a desire that ultimately is going to destroy them. All right, so we see this in Romans, and, and Lewis kind of finishes up with this next comment. He says, Christianity, again, asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever, and this must either be true or false. Now, there are a good many things with which uh, would not be worth bothering about if I, were, if I were going to live for only 70 years, but which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is the precise, correct, precisely the correct technical term for what it would be. And, and we see this, that... Some, maybe you can think of some of the most maybe miserable people in your life. They're always complaining. They're always bitter. Maybe they're always afraid, always angry. And it just seems like you can, they, they're being reduced to the sins that, these sins that they're giving into, these, these moods that they're in. And what Lewis is saying is that, you know, if that keeps on continuing, all you're going to be is bitterness. All you're going to be is cynical. All you're going to be is angry. And, and if Christianity is right, that everyone is immortal, then that's going to consume you. That's going to dominate you. And so um, the idea that, hey, God, I want you just to leave me alone. I don't want to be part of your, your plan. In fact, that's exactly what hell is. All right, so that's, uh, that's that first objection. The next one is uh, this idea that hell is exclusive. Number two, there are lots of good people who don't believe the same thing as us Christians, perhaps. Why should they not go to heaven? And so this idea that, hey, you know, Christianity is so exclusive, you have to believe your doctrine, your way, your truth, or else you go to hell, that just seems so narrow-minded. Um, 
What do we as Christians say to this? Well, first, there's a couple of assumptions behind this objection. First is the assumption about the, just the nature of religions, what a religion is and in light of Christianity. The second thing is an assumption about uh, how we see spiritual br- truths, how we understand spiritual reality, in other words. So let's, let's break that down. First, uh, the assumption about religions. So this quote basically says that if you are Jewish or Islamic or Buddhist and you're a good person, well, that should count for getting you to heaven. And what they're basically saying is that, you know, Christianity says, oh, it's believing the right things that gets you to heaven. But what God should actually measure is how good you are, uh, how how well you behave, maybe. It's your goodness that God should look at, not necessarily your beliefs. And so you have lots of good Buddhists, you have lots of good Jews, you have lots of good uh, maybe Muslims and so on and so forth. And so if God were really fair, then he would recognize that there's a lot of good people in all these religions, and therefore they all qualify for enjoying heaven. Well, This has an assumption about religions that actually isn't uh, true as well for Christianity. That is, uh, Christianity doesn't say that good people go to heaven. In fact, we're saved by grace and not our good behavior. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Uh, Paul writes that, For by grace, not works, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so, here's, here's the truth. Uh, you're saying that, okay, um, good people are the ones who go to heaven, but Christianity says, no, it's, it's act, we're actually saved by grace. And here's why Christianity isn't more exclusive or narrow-minded than any other approach. Because yes, Christianity says there is a line, there is a division between people who are saved and who aren't, but that line is actually a really uh, accessible line. That is, it's for people who recognize that they're not good enough. If you hold to this view about you, the good people are the ones who go to heaven, then that's actually more difficult because, or more exclusive because What about all of us moral failures? What about those of us who have screwed up? What about those of us who haven't made the mark? If you're saying that good people are the ones who should be brought to heaven, then there's a lot of us who probably haven't done as much good as we've done bad. And so this idea that, you know, anyone who's good should be able to go to heaven, well, that actually excludes more people. That's a higher bar. That's a, that's a more difficult standard, a more narrow standard than Christianity, which says anyone who recognizes and accepts their, the forgiveness that's found in Jesus will go to heaven. So Christianity isn't any more exclusive. The idea that some people are going to heaven and some people aren't isn't exclusive because everyone functionally says that there is a line somewhere. Christianity is different because it says that the line is actually much more accessible for more people than the idea of moral performance. Okay, so you can, you can say that you're saved by grace or saved by works, but you can't say both. All right, so that's the assumption behind the, the, 
good people stuff. Now let's look at this other assumption about seeing spiritual reality. And this is uh, pretty prominently captured in this metaphor of the blind men and the elephant. Maybe you've seen this or maybe you've heard this before, but let me recap. So basically some people have begun to say, you know, all these different religions, they're basically like blind men who are trying to examine an elephant and figure out what the elephant really is. And as they go, they're feeling these different parts of the elephant. And one guy grabs the trunk and says, ah, the elephant is like a snake. Uh, Another man grabs the the foot and says, ah, an elephant is like the trunk of a tree. Another man says, oh, you know, he's feeling the side of the elephant and says, ah, the elephant is like a wall. And of course, each one of them is only feeling a part of the elephant and they don't have the complete, spirit, complete picture of what the elephant actually is. And so this illustration goes, it's the same thing for religions, that everyone has a, a part of the truth, but to say that your particular view of spiritual reality is the right view is narrow-minded because you've, you're, you're only seeing a part of what God is doing. So this is, the, this is the argument made against the, the exclusivity of Christianity. So what, what do we say about this? Well, here's, here's the truth. The only way, this is why this metaphor doesn't work, the only way you know that everyone else is blind and the elephant is not what everyone else is describing is if you're the only one who's not blind and in the picture, so to speak, that you alone have vision and clarity of what the situation is like. In other words, you're claiming to have the spiritual sight, the spiritual understanding of reality that you claim that no religion actually has. And essentially you're coming in and saying, your perspective on religion is wrong. I want you to adopt mine because you're blind and I can see the real picture. And so you're claiming to have the spiritual superiority, the superior eyesight about the whole situation that you claim that no religion actually has. And so uh, this is just as, uh, again, narrow and exclusive. You're trying to, people who, who present this are basically trying to do evangelism. They're basically trying to convert you to their particular perspective of spiritual reality. And so when Christians say, I want to, I want to convince you of the, of the truth of the Bible, I want you to convince you of the truth of the gospel, and someone says, oh, that's narrow. I believe that everyone has a part of the truth. Then they're really preaching a different type of conversion, a, a different method of, of uh, evangelism. So... Um, as a, as a result, the idea that you have a different perspective doesn't invalidate that Christianity um, is just as competitive, so to speak, in the marketplace of ideas. All right, so that's a, a little bit of the exclusivity and narrow-mindedness that sometimes we can hear about Christianity. The next one, the next objection is that hell encourages violence. That is, if we want peace in our world, we need to follow a God who doesn't retaliate. This idea of a God who judges, who, who uh, is, you know, seems to be so violent. If we really want peace in our society, shouldn't we follow a God that uh, you know, doesn't retaliate, that also seeks peace, a nonviolent God? And um, this, is a, this is one objection against the doctrine of hell. And we would say, you know, to some degree, there is some truth in the statement that uh, we are called to be like God. And so are we those, 
who maybe perhaps forgive like God forgives and doesn't retaliate like God doesn't retaliate. Well, to some degree, that is part of the Christian message, but it's not the entire picture. We see that there's actually, I'll make this argument, that a nonviolent God doesn't encourage peace. It's actually the opposite. The idea of a God taking action, a God who, who pursues justice, who wields the sword, so to speak, actually gives us a basis for having peace in our world. And I'm going to go to a guy named Miroslav Volf. He's a, he's a Protestant theologian who uh, grew up in the Balkans during a time when there was a lot of uh, just incredible violence in that area. And here's what he says when he's considering this idea of, you know, if we want peace, do we need to have a peaceful, so to speak, God, a nonviolent God? And he essentially says no. He says this, uh, one could further argue that in a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God to not wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. In a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. Most people who insist on God's nonviolence cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. They deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands. Persuaded, presumably, that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. And so, violence thrives, secretly nourished by a belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. What Wolf is saying is, let's imagine you take this idea of a God who doesn't take justice, who doesn't take uh, vengeance, and you come to a place like the Balkans or some other place where the countryside has been ravaged, uh, women have been raped, people have been killed, and you come to these people and say, hey, don't retaliate against this incredible violence done to you because God himself is not going to do anything about it. That was what, uh, according to Wolf, uh, is not going to resonate with the people. That's not going to stop this endless cycle. We, we've seen in many parts of the world where one tribe has committed violence against another tribe and the tribe retaliates and is back and forth, this endless cycle of violence and, and destruction. If you come and say, hey, don't, don't retaliate because God's not going to do anything about your loss or the suffering or the violence that's been done, those people are going to laugh at your face. And so he, he concludes with this. Soon, you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, it will, one will do well to reflect about the many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. And what he's saying is that the idea that, that God doesn't take justice serious, that he doesn't uh, retaliate against evil. The only way someone could come up with that idea is that they lived a very sheltered life. They haven't seen true violence. They haven't seen true atrocities. For the people who have experienced those things, the idea that God is one day going to come back and make all that right and is going to take vengeance and, and address those issues of injustice is a source of hope and comfort for them that gives them the resources to not retaliate. Um, so, okay, well, well, we'll come back to that in a little way. But we, we do see that in First Peter uh, chapter 2. 
Peter writes, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So yes, in a sense, we should follow God in the sense of forgiving our enemies and, re- and uh, you know, not taking justice or vengeance into our own hands. That's true. But the reason why we do that, why we follow Jesus, is we have the same reason Jesus does. That is, Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That is, he entrusted himself to his father, knowing that his father was going to take these atrocities seriously against him. Okay, so that's, that's uh, that objection. Next we have, hell is incompatible with love. If God loves us, how could he let some people suffer hell? And again, maybe I should have said this earlier, but the doctrine of hell is really difficult. I think it's okay and natural to feel a lot of different emotions when we kind of wrestle through these things. And the Bible is clear that even God himself doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked, that he wants to see people saved to come to faith and and to accept the forgiveness that's in Christ. But I think there's a few other aspects of of God's nature that we have to say. First, this idea of, of God's anger, God's wrath, how can that be compatible with a God of love? Well, essentially, Here's, here's the first thing we had to take note of, that anger and, and hatred even is not the opposite of love, but very often flows from love. That is, uh, what we get angry at, what, what frustrates us is usually something that is tied to something that we cherish or that we, we love. Um, and there's a, a great quote from uh, a girl named Rebecca Pippert, and here, here's what she said. You know, we tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. How can a deity who is perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. So what's God's problem then? But love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Nearly a century ago, the theologian E.H. Glifford wrote, Human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates him, hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. Uh, and the final form of hate is indifference. How can a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Did he, does he just play fast and loose with the facts? Oh, never mind. Boys will be boys. Try telling that to a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields or to someone who lost an entire family in the Holocaust. No, to be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and implacably hostile to justice. So what is she saying there? Is that when you, when you do love something, you hate that which threatens it. When you cherish something, Anger is the natural response when whatever you love is being hurt or being damaged or being corrupted. And we see in the scriptures that God created all of creation and humanity, and he said, this is good. We see this from Genesis 1, but also God loves us because we are made in his image and he, and he cares for us. And so when he sees sin ravage us, then he hates it. He, he wants to take action against it. And so God's love for us prompts 
uh, his, his hatred for sin and his anger against it and against those who would use it against others. Okay, so that's, that's true. But the other thing we have to say, and maybe this is maybe a little bit more challenging for us as Christians, is that God's love for others, uh, for, for humanity, is deep, it's real, but he also has a love for his own glory, a, a cherishing of his own namesake. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. All right, next one. Uh, hell is disproportional for the crime. How could an eternity of suffering be fair for a mere lifetime of sin? So whether they're saying, okay, let's maybe just take a really bad person. Maybe they've just been sinning their entire life. And okay, maybe they need to, yeah, really experience some justice. They need to pay for what they've done. That's true. But let's say you live for 90 years and you sin for 90 years. How is it fair then that you're punished for all eternity? Doesn't that seem like a little bit of overkill? Isn't that disproportionate? Isn't that unfair? And so what do we say to that? Um, I think I've, I've used this on Sunday mornings, but I use the analogy of using an axe. So if you were to go and you pick up this axe and you start just swinging it like crazy at a tree, then when people look at you, they're going to say, oh, okay, that, uh, I guess he's chopping some wood, right? So uh, everything's good. Maybe you'll, you might have some environmentalists who get upset and say, how dare you, you know, the tree is, uh, has, has value too. Okay, so maybe that, that would be fair. But now let's say you grab that same ax and you have that same motion and you're going after a rat. Uh, some people might look at you and say, okay, well, they really hate rats. Uh, that's a, that's a, kind of going a little overboard, but you know, rats carry diseases. I can understand that you have to kind of take this action. And, and maybe, again, you have some animal lovers who feel, oh, that's probably a better way of, of doing that. But again, you're, you're not going to get in too much trouble maybe. Okay, well, let's say you, you take the same ax, the same swinging motion, and you go after a dog now. Now, if someone sees you going after a dog with an ax, they're probably going to call animal control or uh, at least the police. And you might be fined, might even do some jail time, and there's an in increased punishment because of what you've done or attempted to do against this dog. Okay, so it ramps up. Let's say that now you get that same ax, you use that same swinging motion, and this time you go after your neighbor, a fellow human being. You're not going to get in fines. You're not going to have to maybe only do jail. Uh, you, you'll probably get jail plus more on top of that, right? Now, you're doing the same action each time. It's the same ax. It's the same swinging motion. Why then are there different punishments, so to speak, for these different, you know, for, for the same action? And the answer is, the object of your attack determines the guilt. That is, that is what you're trying to attack, what you're trying to hurt determines how guilty you are. If you go and attack a tree, that's not going to be nearly as incriminating as going after a dog or even a fellow human being. Well, Christianity says that even though these things have worth in themselves, the being, the person that has ultimate and infinite worth is God himself, that he is the most valuable and precious and beautiful being in existence. And therefore, any sin that's aimed towards God is infinitely atrocious, infinitely horrible, 
Uh, not because of how long we've been doing it, but because of who we're doing it against. And, and Christianity says that God himself is the most glorious and wonderful person in existence, and any crime against him is going to have a proportional uh, sentence attached to it. So God is infinitely worthy, and so sin against an infinitely worthy God deserves an infinite punishment to correspond with it. We see, we see that this is the, the motivation for much of God's work is his own glory, his own value. Um, and, and maybe one other thing we would say is, you know, the, the time aspect, how can a person who sins for, you know, 70 years be punished for, you know, eternity? Uh, well, we, we don't hold to that principle in, in just regular crimes, right? It might only take a minute for you to murder someone else. It wouldn't be fair to say, well, since it took you a minute to murder that person, your crime is going to be a minute in jail. That would be silly, right? So even we, we don't even hold to that in our human courts of justice. Um, but God, God values his own glory. He values his own name. And we see this in Isaiah 48. Um, Isaiah writes from the, uh, that the Lord says, but for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. Or how should, I, how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. In other words, God, God supremely treasures his own glory himself. And if God didn't treasure himself supremely, well, then he'd be guilty of breaking the first commandment to, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. And as much as he loves the world and loves humanity and his creation, he, he loves his glory supremely. And as, as uh, one uh, Christian has spoke, yes, God loves the world for sure, but he loves his glory more. Okay, so let's, let's look at the next one now. So, oops. all right, so here's the objection. Hell, a uh, little typo there, would make heaven depressing. How could I enjoy heaven knowing that there are people who are suffering uh, while I'm enjoying heaven? And uh, I think this is a legitimate question that, you know, people have is that, okay, and I'm, I know I'm supposed to be in heaven enjoying God and, and celebrating that I've been saved, but just the fact that there's going to be some people somewhere who are suffering, won't that kind of ruin heaven for the rest of us? Won't it, won't it take away from our joy? And um, here's, I think, what, what is underlying this uh, objection. Show the picture here of this boy. Uh, again, I'm going to refer back to C.S. Lewis, and he talks about this in his book, The Great Divorce. But he says, you know, imagine that there's uh, a few children playing, and um, let's say the boy wants to play the game his particular way, but no one else agrees to that way of playing the game. And so in anger and frustration, he leaves the group and go, goes to pout, uh, where everyone can see him. And, and the point of his pouting is not merely that he's sad that he didn't get his way, but he wants to make everyone else 
miserable by showing how upset he is that they didn't follow uh, his preference. And so uh, Lewis gives this argument that uh, the, a lot of the pouting, a lot of the, the, the misery that people not only want to have in themselves, but they, wanna, they want their misery to kind of spread to everyone else as well. And Lewis says this is the same thing when people object to being able to enjoy heaven when there's people who have rejected God's grace, that this should not be able to blackmail heaven, as he puts it. And so yeah, I'll, let, I'll let him say it. So Lewis writes, uh, The demand of the loveless and the self-imprisoned is that they should be allowed to blackmail the universe, that, they should, that till they consent to be happy on their own terms, no one else shall taste joy, that there should be the final power, that hell should be able to veto heaven, it must be one way or the other. Either the day must come when the joy prevails and all the makers of misery are no longer able to infect it or else forever and ever the makers of misery can destroy in others the happiness they reject for themselves. I know it has a grand sound to say you'll accept no salvation which leaves even one creature in the dark outside, but watch that sophistry, or you'll make a dog in a manger the tyrant of the universe. Well, I didn't include it there. But what C.S. Lewis is saying is this, is that if, if those who have rejected the grace of Jesus are able to ruin heaven for everyone else, then essentially God isn't able to bring resolution, that, that the people who are miserable are, have the final word, are able to veto the happiness of those who have accepted this grace. And so Lewis says it's one way or another, either that uh, these misery makers, as he calls them, gets to have the final word or the joy of the Lord has the final word. And so you can't have it both ways. Um, so the other thing that I would say on this is when, okay, let's say maybe, maybe there's a loved one in our life and if they don't come to Christ, again, how do, I, how, do I, how do I feel about, you know, just not having them, you know, so to speak, in my life when I'm in heaven enjoying the glory of God? And one of the things that I've kind of speculated on is that the, the goodness that we see and enjoy in others is a pointer to the goodness that comes from God. First, uh, or James chapter one says this, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights and with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So what the Bible teaches is that, that all these good things we talked about already, this common grace are, are from God himself. He is the source of goodness. And so when a husband loves his wife, when a father loves his son, when a, when a stranger helps out another stranger, these are the good gifts that God has bestowed upon people. And there are things that, yeah, we should celebrate and enjoy and, and be thankful for that these things are true in that person's life. But we recognize that the source of those good things are actually from God and not from us. And you know, it's really interesting. Um, when we, when we talk about attributing good and bad to ourselves, we don't do this evenly at all. When, when something bad, maybe we have a bad attitude or uh, something is, uh, you know, we have a bad heart about something, a bad response, uh, maybe a word slipped out or something, we typically kind of attribute it to our circumstances. Well, my boss made me really angry today or my job made me really frustrated, or my spouse, blah, blah, blah. And, and we, we say, you know, 
Yeah, I might have misbehaved, but the cause is out there. But when it comes to the good things, we very rarely attribute it to others when that goodness comes from us, right? We, say, we don't say, well, the only reason I gave is because that, that, uh, gave that donation is because that speaker really was able to overcome my greed. Like we don't say that, right? We, we typically say, you know, I felt like I needed to give. We attribute the good to us, but we very rarely attribute the bad to us. Well, the Bible kind of says the opposite, that uh, we are, the, the, the evil that is in us is not something that's outside of us influencing us. It is a true evil that is within us. And the good that we have in us is, is a gift from God himself. And so uh, when, we, when we look at maybe a family member and see the kindness of their heart, or we see a beautiful picture of a stranger giving up his life for someone else, those are those are sourced in God himself and they point us back to God himself. And so whatever, whatever joy we have in some of these relationships, it's going to be but a shadow of the joy that we're going to enjoy in God himself. All right, here's the, our last objection. So, and this is something that I think a lot of Christians probably would say is that, or maybe not even say it out loud, but at least imply it. Hell might be in the Bible, and maybe it should be taught, but it's not something that Christians should emphasize or focus on in our relationship with God. In other words, that, okay, you have to believe that hell exists, okay, you have to believe that if you don't accept the gospel that, that you're going to be guilty of hell and, and deserving of hell, okay, but... If you really want to grow in your relationship with Jesus, you want to feel his love, you want to feel just God's presence, hell isn't really going to be a doctrine or a belief that's going to help you with that stuff. It's something, yeah, you have to believe, but if you want to grow in, in how much you experience God's presence and love, then uh, hell and judgment, that's just something you kind of need to just keep on the back burner, so to speak. And uh, I, I kind of gave this example, but you know, if you turn on maybe a lot of Christian radio, you have radio stations that say K-Love, but there's no radio station called like K-Justice, right? It's because, you know, we, we think, oh, you know, if we're, gonna, if we're gonna grow in understanding God's love, then we need to stay away from, you know, God being just and God judging, and that's not gonna be really helpful. I wanna, I wanna push back against that in a substantial way here. First, I think this, and this is, if you are taking notes, this is probably something that I would encourage you to write down. But hell, God's, God's judgment against sin, is the measure of God's response to human sin. That, that hell, God's anger and, and fury and, and the punishment, is the measure of God's response to human sin. And, it, and it's true in two ways. That is, we see that hell shows us how angry God is with sinners like us, how, how just totally opposed, and, and this word wrath, right, this, this burning anger. God isn't just like, oh, you broke rule number 14. Uh, by law, I need to, you know, sentence you and judge you for that. Like, no, the, the law reflects God's own nature, his own goodness. And so when we break his commandments, when we sin, we're again saying God's not as valuable as he claims he is. And so God really does 
hates sin and, and is furious and wrathful against any assault against his glory. And so hell is the measure of God's response to human sin. That is, he takes his justice seriously. He takes truth seriously. He takes righteousness seriously. And if you don't believe that, then you don't really see how incredibly devastating God's judgment is against the violation of those things. But hell is also the measure of God's response to human sin in a second way. That is, hell shows us how far God would go to to save those sinners. And we see this in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is, we, we talked about this idea of time, you know, infinite suffering. Well, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he didn't just suffer the physical wounds of crucifixion as terrible as that was. He was also suffering the judgment of God in the place of sinners. And the Bible recounts that for three hours, Jesus experienced this, this darkness, this uh, gnashing of teeth. Um, you see, like in, for example, Luke 16, uh, Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man is feasting every day. Lazarus is sick and wounded at the gate. And no, even the dogs come up to lick his sores. And after, after they both die, Lazarus goes into the presence of, of God and of Abraham. And uh, the rich man goes down to, to hell, to uh, Gehenna. And, and while he's in hell, he, he sees Father Abraham from across the gap, so to speak, and says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to just dip his finger in water and touch my lips, touch my tongue, so that, because my thirst is unbearable. And it's kind of funny because even in hell, the rich man is still giving orders. But um, he's thirsty. He's, he's extremely thirsty because the, the source of, of water is found in God. But when Jesus Christ goes to the cross, he says, I am thirsty. That is, he was experiencing hell on the cross. And yeah, he was only there for three hours, but being fully God, he, could, he had a capacity for suffering that no mere human would be able to have. So Jesus experiences the full eternity, so to speak, of suffering those three hours on the cross. And that, that judgment was the length that God was willing to go to in order to bring sinners to himself. And some people say, oh, you know, God was going to punish, you know, humans, but instead he punished this substitute. You know, is that really fair? You know, some people have even said, isn't that like divine child abuse, right? And, and what they fail to understand is the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. That is, God wasn't inflicting judgment on a third party. He was inflicting judgment on himself. Uh, this is a, a helpful diagram to help us understand the, the nature of the Trinity. That is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit make are three persons of the one God. There's, there's a joke that if you try to explain the Trinity for longer than like two minutes, you'll say something heretical, so I got to keep this short. But, <laughs> but you see, all three are fully God. But the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. So they're distinct in their persons, but one in their essence, is uh, one historic way of putting it. But the point of this is that God didn't bring judgment on some outside third party. He brought judgment, so to speak, on himself. The Father brought judgment on the Son. And, and so God 
was, took the hit himself, in other words. God was the one who, in a sense, okay, whatever difficulty we might have with the doctrine of hell, we at least know this, that God was willing to take his own medicine, so to speak. God was willing to taste. Uh, and, and in Christ, God tasted judgment in hell that no one ever will because of his divine capacity, so to speak. And so Jesus took hell, took this infinite suffering on the cross, and this is something that Christians should meditate on because if we move past hell saying, ah, this isn't really gonna help me appreciate God or uh, help me get closer to God's love, then we've misunderstood God's purpose, that that God's judgment shows how far he is willing to love us, to bring us to himself. Some people say, okay, you know, I want, a, I want a God who cares about the truth. I want a God who cares about justice, but I, I want a God who is willing to redeem me, to save me, to go to this distance to show me love. And, and the cross fulfills that. Um, and we see a beautiful picture of that in Psalm 85. And, you know, and the question you know, becomes, okay, how does God end evil without also ending us? Well, the answer is that it's Jesus Christ on the cross. And we get a picture of this in Psalm 85, verse 10. We have this, uh, I think this is the K, uh, King James Version because they do a really good job translating this. But here's, here's what it says. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Now what the psalmist is saying is that, man, you know, I want the mercy I want peace with God. I want this forgiveness, but I don't want to compromise on on the truth. I don't want to compromise on righteousness. I don't want to compromise on on God's justice. Well, Psalmist is pointing us to the cross, that on the cross, we see justice upheld. We also see forgiveness for sinners. We see righteousness and peace have kissed. We see mercy and truth have been been brought together, that in Jesus Christ, these two aspects of God, God being merciful and God being true and just come together, that God values and upholds both of these things by giving up his own son on the cross. And so uh, this is, this is the, the doctrine of hell, as difficult as it may be, is something that we should not neglect, should not put off to the side it's the measure of God's love for us, what he was willing to endure in order to bring us to himself. All right, so uh, I want to open up this time to questions. Uh, I try to go through like seven typical objections to the doctrine of hell, but uh, obviously uh, there's more. But if there's a particular question about anything that I've brought up or any other aspect to God's judgment or justice, or even uh, maybe you had a question from a previous week that you wanted to bring up. Um, I want to try to give an uh, answer, give a response to that as best as I can. Yeah, so um, just to kind of restate the question for everyone else, there's a couple couple positions on the final judgment of non-believers. One is the, I guess, yeah, the eternal conscious uh, suffering of believers, that is, uh, people who do not accept the righteousness of Christ, the forgiveness of God. They, they continue to experience separation from God and they do so in a conscious state. That is, they don't fall asleep. They don't, um, 
get annihilated, that they cease to exist, that they continue to exist, but they, are, they do so in a, a state of awareness, awakeness, and their, their suffering is continual. The other approach that sometimes is argued is the annihilationist, annihilationist approach, which says maybe at some point along the way, just these people cease to exist. And so historically, uh, Christian, Christians have held to the first position that there will be uh, eternal torment. And uh, we see this in the teachings of Jesus. Uh, Jesus spoke a lot about hell. That uh, He's one of our biggest sources of the New Testament on hell. And uh, there's a passage, I'll, I'll try to find it real quick, but he's talking about uh, the Bible. The New Testament uses a few words or hell, but one of them is Gehenna. Now, um, and, and Hades is another one, but Gehenna was actually a physical place right outside of Jerusalem. And what this place was, was historically, it was a place where people at some point had come and, and would sacrifice their, their children uh, to the fire at this place. So it had that reputation with it. But by the time of Jesus, it had come to function as a type of um, garbage dump, basically. So Gehenna was this, this burning place that usually had a, a fire to it. And of course, what would happen is that, you know, people would take maybe their rotting food out or their, you know, whatever trash and put it out there. And, um, you know, as time went on, it was a dirty place. And so worms would eventually, you know, obviously come in. And, and as the trash was burned and, and continued to be you know, uh, lit on fire, the worms would eventually, of course, die because worms and fire don't go along. But Jesus comes along and says, there's a punishment, there's a Gehenna where the worm will never die. The worm will never die. And what he's saying is that there's a, there's a weeping and gnashing of teeth that discontinues. Now, some people again have argued that how can sin continue after God's judgment. If there's going to be people in hell who continually reject God, who continually say to God, I don't like it here, but I don't like what you have to offer even more, so I'm going to stay here. Um, you have this, apparently, like, this issue of sin seemed to be, you know, continued. How is it, how is it, you know, how does God have victory over sin if these people still exist? You need to see them essentially annihilated in order for sin to stop. And um, what we would say to that is that uh, the existence of sin in itself is not something that undermines God's glory. It's the fact of unpunished sin is what undermines God's glory. God is actually revealed as glorious and just and true when he brings righteous judgment on, on sin. So the mere fact that there are people who are in rebellion against God doesn't undermine his glory or his authority if he is punishing them continually. And so uh, that, that's a few aspects of the, the debate. Um, I, I'd have to recall that specific verse. My, my iPad is dead at home. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, provide those, those scriptures if there's a uh, interest in that uh, next time for you guys. But yeah, so that's the, that's the debate. So some people have argued like, yeah, annihilationism is the, the way to see evil come to an end. But for the reasons I've kind of given here and for the scriptural evidence, we'd never see a point where um, people cease to exist. Now, they, some people have argued, maybe these are the scriptures that you've referred to, that uh, they will be destroyed. Uh, but the word that's 
can be translated as destroyed in hell or destroyed in Gehenna or Hades is not, doesn't mean annihilated. It actually means made useless, broken, so to speak. So the idea there is that, you know, we were created to worship God, to enjoy him, but because of our sin, uh, we are incapacitated to some degree to some degree of doing that. And when God sends us to hell for our rejection of God's grace, then we're utterly broken. We're utterly incapable of having this relationship with God. So that's the, the meaning that's usually translated as destruction. So that's just kind of off the top of my head on that. But yeah, that's a, that's a helpful question. 